Hello and welcome to the Art Monthly talk show. I'm Chris McCormack and today I'm joined by writer and researcher Benoit Luzo and Lon Abzigogati, who is a writer and lecturer in history and theory of art at the Slade School of Fine Art. Lon will discuss the work of Adam Farah, whose work is presently on show at Camden Arts Centre in London. But first, I'd like to begin with Benoit Luzo, who joins to discuss Greg Bordovitz's exhibition, I Want to Be Well, which was recently on show at MoMA PS1 in New York. The exhibition spanned 30 years or more of a career devoted to the intersection of activism around HIV-AIDS, writing, and an art practice, a practice for which he is largely known as a video maker. And I'm sure we'll discuss these numerous and fascinating strands of his practice. But firstly, I wondered if we could begin by discussing the legacies of his early works and how it charts a period of life in New York in the 1980s and how that continues to unfold in the present. Sure, yeah. I think, um, you know, something that's important to remember about Greg Bordovitz is that he very much started his artistic career in a context of activism. Um, and so I remember um, meeting him a few years ago for an interview, and he was telling me that um, when he joined ACT UP in uh, 1987, which was actually a year prior um, testing positive himself, he essentially um, dropped out of college. He was studying at NYU at the time. He dropped out of college, um, joined ACT UP, and even though he had the ambition um, to become an artist in a maybe more kind of traditional sense, he told me about um, having a, a painting practice at the time, which I didn't know, which I found very interesting. Um, but he kind of dropped everything because he felt like many of his peers at the time, um, the kind of gravity of the situation um, required all of his efforts and his dedication. So I think it's important to remember that the kind of early works, um, the beginning of what we now call his artistic career, was really more of an activist effort, um, which was obviously infused by, um, you know, kind of artistic sensitivities and skills and techniques and what he would probably call strategies. Um, so the early works, um, so, Greg Bordovitz became very much involved in the filmmaking aspects of ACT UP. So he was in charge and helped co-found a number of film organizations that were either part of ACT UP or that kind of, um, you know, revolved around ACT UP. Um, so one of them was the fabulously named DIVA, which stands for Damned Interfering Video Artists, and um, which was very much committed to producing um, uh, audiovisual material that kind of truthfully reflected the realities of the movement um, and of activist efforts at the time, which um, was obviously a kind of initiative to counter the heavily stigmatized mainstream media of the time because, you know, the actor felt that all that was being said on TV was always the same thing, which was you know, don't worry about it. It's them getting sick, them being the gays, uh, the uh, immigrants and the sex workers. So um, Greg Bordovitz and his peers at the time uh, just uh, were committed to producing um, video material that gave kind of um, an alternative narrative um, to that stigmatizing uh, uh, story. So that, 
is very much the context in which Greg Bordovitz um, emerged. Um, so yeah, I guess that's kind of the early years. Yeah, I, I mean, I think if when I think of the early video works, I think specifically of the the sort of I can't, a sort of well known work of his uh, fast trip, fast trip, long drop. Um, mm -hmm. Think a bit about that, and also his collective testing the limits collective as well. How are these kinds of, as you said, Diva TV, all these kinds of collectives at that time, or affinity groups within Active, how they all kind of led to a kind of. I suppose different forms and practices around filmmaking and how they enabled a kind of broader snapshot or broader portrait of life at that time, living with HIV AIDS and also the kind of the bigger pictures of like government, um, uh, government ineptitude and overlooking the kind of, as you say, the rights of those uh, marginal bodies or what they seem to be marginal bodies um, and the rights mm. to those people. Um, maybe we could speak a bit about that and actually specifically that work. I think that would be quite interesting to hear about. Yeah, yeah. I think Fast Trip Long Drop, um, as, as you suggest, is a very important work. Um, and it was my introduction to um, Bordovitz's work, like many others, I, I, I suspect. Um, and I think it's a very, um, it's a very interesting work for, for different reasons, but I think it also marks um, a kind of shift in his practice, which until then, um, you know, uh, no matter how creative it may have been, it was still very much, it kind of served a purpose, it, it had a function. Um, a lot of the film work before that was with views of, um, you know, either kind of promoting safe sex or doing kind of strategies around prevention, etc. Um, Fast ship long drop, we kind of, it's its something else. It becomes um, this very strange hybrid um, of kind of documentary filmmaking. It utilizes a lot of the shooting that was made as part of Diva and Testing the Limit, so the kind of documentation of protests, etc. But um, it merges that with these kind of comical reenactments, with these kind of um, uh, sort of mimicking of um, mainstream media language. So these kind of um, talking head interviews, et cetera. Um, so it's very kind of um, strange hybrids. Um, there's an expression um, by a film scholar, Alexandra Juhas, that I like particularly, um, who called it the first meta-AIDS video, um, by which she means that it kind of uh, uh, put together uh, this ensemble of different languages. On the one hand, a sort of grassroots activist video making, and then a sort of like replica of mainstream news um, uh, television language. And it's a film that's actually really funny, um, surprisingly so, because um, the context in which Bordovitz made that film, so it was released in 1993. 1993 was the International AIDS Conference in Berlin, which um, essentially um, announced a global global spread of the disease with no predictions of effective treatments in the years, possibly decades to come. So um, Bordovitz at the time, who was still in his 20s, um, essentially made that film at a time when he was convinced that he was going to die um, and believed that it was the, the last film he would make. So the, the context was actually very bleak um, and quite desperate. And even though that's palpable, um, as I uh, said previously, it's also quite a, a funny film. It's very much infused by that kind of um, um, sort of Jewish humor, American Jewish humor and 
comedy, um, and it's um, and, and and for all those reasons, um, it's um, it's a very interesting and quite impactful film. Um, there's a number of appearances of um, people who are close to both of it. So Andrea Fraser, for instance, who I believe he met at the Whitney Independent Study Program, and they've remained they've remained friends ever since. In fact, I think if you look at the more recent. Um, work of both of it, his lecture performances, you see a lot of overlap with um, Andrea Fraser's work. Um, Yvonne Reiner as well appears in the film, um, they've been very close and he often credits uh, credits her as a, a great influence of his. Um, so yeah, Fast Trip Long Job is um, a very interesting film and one which seems to mark a bit of a shift in his practice from the purely activist work that kind of serves a very uh, specific purpose to something more open-ended, more kind of relentless. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think it's interesting, you know, you talk about that sort of that period of time, the early 90s, which of course was the, well, the beginning of the end wasn't clear uh, in terms of mm. effective treatments uh, and the treatments that were at that time AZT and so on were proving not to be successful. Um, it's interesting, I think the opening of this exhibition opens with the banner the AIDS crisis is still beginning. And I think that's an interesting temporal format through which to kind of consider where we are in terms of the stages of the AIDS crisis and how it still remains one that's either overlooked or seen to have gone away and so on and so forth. Maybe talk a bit about the temporality of the AIDS crisis in relation to what uh, Greg Porterbitz's work is sort of commenting on as well. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the AIDS crisis is still beginning. So in the in the show um, at uh, MoMA, so there was this banner that sort of greets you into the building. It's this kind of uh, uh, long uh, sort of landscape format, um, bright yellow, uh, red lettering, very kind of Barbara Krug-esque, um, which, which which reads, uh, the AIDS crisis is still beginning. Um, this, this phrase actually comes from, I don't know the exact origin of it, but I know that it was the title of a book of essays published in 2003 um, in conjunction with uh, an exhibition which both of its heads um, at the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago. And it kind of compiled different writings about um, fast trip long drop and uh, another film of his called Habit, um, which tend to be sort of compared because Habit is sort of a continuation of Fast Trip Long Drop. So that's, that's uh, to my knowledge, the first time that that um, phrase appeared, which in itself is significant because that was nearly 20 years ago. So it's this kind of, a, there's already kind of a play on the timing of, of when this phrase may be appropriate or not. Um, I mean, I, I suppose, yeah, the. The kind of like obvious reading of that sentence is about, you know, who is um, most affected by the AIDS crisis? Um, is it really a virus of the past? Because we feel that now it is a chronic disease that um, it can be easily managed, um, but who is still actually suffering from it? So it kind of raises these questions of, um, obviously the, the kind of like disparity between uh, the West and the global South. Um, it raises questions around disparities even within the United States based on race. Um, uh, African-American populations are still largely more affected by HIV AIDS 
then the white cunt uh, appears. Um, so it, it, it does kind of raise this kind of like social issue of um, when does AIDS begin and end. Um, but I think there's also something kind of more um, kind of timeless about it, which is, um, you know, I think if you replace AIDS with sort of care, for instance, or, or, or just, uh, you know, uh, uh, pandemics, um, you know, when do disease um, appear and when do they go away? Do they ever go away? I think there's something a little bit kind of deeper um, about um, how we collectively deal with um, care and well-being. And, and, and I think, I'm obviously not going to um, put words in both of its mouths, but it, it seems to me that it's there's something um, kind of um, deeper and sort of bigger about that. Um, yeah, you talk, I mean, it's interesting because you have the two clocks uh, as well in the exhibition, one of which is time to New one is which is New York time and the other is uh, Cape Town, I think. And it's these sort of bridging of these two other cultures or two other time frames and how they are meeting or not meeting. And I guess that's similarly evoked uh, in what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the time, so um, the AIDS crisis is still beginning. Um, so that book I mentioned earlier, um, in conjunction with the Chicago show is when um, Bordovitz first uh, exhibited that work with the two clocks. So it's um, this um, sort of uh, childlike um, race car um, and it's sort of surrounded by these two clocks, one set to New York time, one set to Cape Town time. Um, and he made that work and the film habits when he came back from the um, uh, yearly uh, International AIDS Conference, which uh, that year was held in um, South Africa. And so that film and the uh, sort of coinciding works very much touched on that sort of disparity between the West and the Global South. Um, so I suppose there is that play with the two clocks um, and, and, and the idea of, uh, you know, what, what, yeah, what, what is the time, what is the duration of, of these kind of uh, processes and um, uh, how does it stretch? And I think this, you know, if you start thinking about time, this, there are so many ways that this could be interpreted. I mean, one could think of queer time, um, the idea of, uh, you know, um, the kind of uh, queers uh, sort of operating and living their lives in a different time frame. Um, depending on how you want to think about it, you know, on the one hand, you could say freed from the kind of um, uh, normative constraints of uh, sort of family, etc. But then also, uh, you know, maybe uh, in a certain way, kind of controlled by the imperatives of um, pharmaceutical companies. Um, so there's this kind of play on time that um, seems to me to be very intersectional. Um, so at the intersection of race, of queerness, of um, capitalism and, and, and care. Um, so it's quite, um, it's quite relentless, I think, that work when you start thinking about it. It really goes in many different directions. Yeah, I think also it's interesting to sort of think about uh, within that as well, this idea of the, of, of the relationships and friendships that are so integral to I think of Borderworks's practice, but also to even his sort of uh, political viewpoint. Um, I think he talks about a certain kind of composition of relations. And I think if we think, 
about what it means, what, what relations are prioritized. You know, we talk about queer time and so on, but also the ideas of kinship and what relationships are valued and how they're valued uh, is also a political manifestation and borne out through many, many things, such as what it means for a queer person to have friendships and loves and so on and how they're recognized. Uh, I wonder if how that mm. is made or represented in this show or if it's represented in this exhibition. Mm. Yeah, um, I mean, it is in some ways, it's quite subtle, um, but I mean, for me, maybe the, the best representation of, of the kind of politics of friendship, if, if, you, if you can call it that, would be through the um, archives um, or archival materials. So there's a room that's um, dedicated primarily to um, press clippings and sort of memorabilia um, and uh, flyers, etc. And as part of that, um, you'll see sort of photographs of a young Greg Bordovitz having a good time with his friends, many of whom were curators and critics and other artists. And it does seem to kind of paint this portrait of um, a community that um, was uh, at once very politically engaged, but also was having a good time. Um, and I think that's something important as well um, to kind of counter that sort of bleak memory of um, people dying. Um, there was also um, some kind of good times that were heads and I think that's important to remember. But I think um, another way to answer that question is, you know, I think Bordovitz um, to me is one of the artists who can really sort of play those aspects about relationships. Um, they may be even more kind of uh, moving and impactful in the way that they're not necessarily represented in the show. And it reminds me that um, when I when I met Bordovitz, which was in um, I think 2017, he was you know, telling me anecdotes which are not necessarily unique to um, long-term survivors of, of HIV. But he was telling me about um, the feelings of um, survivor's guilt, which is um, uh, common for anyone who survives um, these kind of uh, uh, you know uh, sort of devastating um, events. Um, and he was telling me that still to this day, he'll be walking down the streets of New York and he will sort of see faces, he'll, he'll see passers-by and he will feel like he recognized somebody who died 30 years ago. And for, you know, a few seconds has this kind of, uh, you know, wanting to go and speak to somebody until he realizes, oh, it's not them, that person is dead. Mm. Um, and so I think that anecdote became quite meaningful to me because, um, I think there's something about um, Bordovitz's work that really very much deals with absence um, and with, you know, those who remain and those who are gone. And, um, and I think those who are gone are still kind of with him and is still with the work. Um, and, um, and there's different ways that this can be sort of, uh, uh, that can, they can play into the work. I think one example for me is um, a relatively recent video called um, Only Idiot Smile. That's from 2017. It was first shown at the new museum um, for that group exhibition, which I believe was called um, Gender as a Weapon, uh, something like that. Um, and um, it's a video of Bordovitz um, giving one of his lecture performances. He's dressed in a suit 
um, and he's um, sitting on this high stool. So he's kind of mimicking the language of um, sort of 1950s comedy, um, even though the video is not funny, which is also part of the work. Um, but what was fun, what, what's interesting about that video, I think, is that um, he's addressing a public that you never see. And because he attempts to deliver the, these jokes that kind of fail to land, um, you'd say bombing in uh, the yeah. sort of um, uh, comedy language. Um, and so he concludes, he concludes, oh, well, it's not funny. Um, but to me, what that video does is kind of raising question of, you know, where is the public? Is the public still there? Maybe the public has gone. And, and so it kind of raises these questions of, um, you know, the kind of limits between human and non-human living and, and dead. Um, and, 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 and so, yeah, this was kind of a long way around your initial question, which was about uh, friendships. But um, I guess what I'm saying is, um, uh, I find Bordovit is one of those artists where a lot happens in what isn't shown and isn't said. I think absence is very kind of meaningful in his work. Mm. I think that's true, very true. Um, and also, you raise the, uh, the question, or rather the, 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 the presence of uh, a library, um, which is also interesting in relation to what what is seen and not seen in many ways, but um, as this is now central to this exhibition, which is this library of his, his, his I guess his thinking in a sense, um, perhaps, you, I mean, you sort of draw attention to it. So perhaps let's talk a little bit about what the library stands for for you in this exhibition. Yeah. I mean, I was excited to see the library because, um, you know, I'm writing part of my PhD thesis on board of it. So that kind of stuff is gold to me. I was like, great. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like swimming in his brain. Yeah. Um, it did occur to me, I did think, God, I wonder who else cares about this? Um, now, to be fair, I think, you know, the sort of traditional board of its fan base, I would imagine, are the kind of people who want to see his books. Um, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not sure about everyone else. Um, but I did find that it was um, it was a really great addition because it's it, it felt like it was kind of establishing reading as a practice in its own right. Um, um, which in many ways for both of it, it is that he dedicates to uh, reading and uh, and writing, but even writing things that never get published. Um, so I thought it was kind of an interesting thing. And it also, even though you can um, uh, handle the books, which um, I thought was a little bit um, uh, unfortunate, I mean, understandable, but unfortunate, um, but you could see, you know, you could see the books that were most worked on because you'd see like little post-its coming out of them. So it was kind of fun to um, to sort of like analyze what books, you know, potentially had been most studied or impactful mm -hmm. for him. I mean, for me, those were, you know, I mean, the uh, Deleuze and Guattari's A Thousand Plateau, unsurprisingly, seemed to be decorated with um, many little post-its and, and, and notes. Mm. So that was interesting to see um, many books on psychoanalysis, unsurprisingly, um, either. Um, so, yeah, I thought I thought it was a, a really kind of an interesting addition. Yeah, it does offer an insight into someone's working mind. Um... Sure. Well, I don't think there's any plans for the exhibition to travel beyond the States. I don't think, I mean, I know it traveled through 
two or three venues before PS1, but I don't think there's any plans for it to travel to the UK or anywhere in Europe, but... Uh, uh, yeah, not that I'm aware of. Yeah. Um, I hope if anybody is listening who is in a position that can make that happen, <laughs> I think that would be a wonderful project. I know, it um, seems surprising. I would imagine that KW in Berlin would be a good place for it, but I would not... <laughs> true. It comes to mind. But uh, yeah. yes, so we'll see. We'll see. Well, fingers crossed. Anyway, Benoit, it's been a pleasure to speak to you about this exhibition and I hope to see you, you know, yeah. outside Thanks of so here. Much. Many thanks again, Benoit. And for those interested in knowing more, Benoit's review of Greg Bordovitz's exhibition is in the current November issue of Art Monthly. I'm now joined by Lan Absakogati, who has profiled the work of Adam Farah and which explores communal cultural references and living with bare minimum resources, often drawing upon their own experiences living in North London. Also going under the name of Free Yard, a subject I'm sure we'll discuss, Lan's text focuses on Farah's exhibition at Camden Arts Centre in London and which continues to the 23rd of December. So I wondered if we might begin there and contemplate how their recent set of works form generous invitations to participate alongside and along with their own experiences and memories. Yeah, I think, I mean, this is something that I thought about and kind of talked about with some friends uh, over, well, since seeing um, Adam's show, uh, whether the work itself kind of how much does it make sense to or make meaning for for everyone in some way or like how do you find your entry point into it because there's so many that they provide within within the work whether it's like you find your attachment to um the work via music or whether you find your attachment to the work via uh like certain reference points i, I mentioned in the opening of my profile the the sort of massive photograph that um they've put up of Brent Cross shopping center fountain um or other people may find their entrance into um Adam's work through I don't know like queer references or uh a certain use of language so I feel like it's a really rich and very generous and very open way of working um and I kind of specifically spoke about my relationship to some of the references that they bring in that are very like North London references not even just North London but kind of like yeah some of them are very specifically North London references and some of them feel like references that are maybe also just to do with having grown up uh roughly the same time I think Adam's a few years younger than me but often when I was looking at the work or talking about it with people, I did wonder, like, does this make any sense to anyone who, you know, doesn't pick up on these things? Like, I have some sort of a real enjoyment of looking at an, an enormous photograph of Brent Cross Fountain. But, you know, and the show, fortunately, is in northwest London. So there's lots yeah. of people who will enjoy looking at a photograph of Brent Cross Fountain. Um, but how much can it, like, travel beyond that? And... I think actually the thing that's been interesting in talking to people about their work is that those of us who share the references, those references, all had the same questions. So I spoke to a few people and they were like, oh, I wonder like how legible it is to people who don't recognise these things. Mm -hmm. Whereas then people I spoke to who didn't recognise those things because they grew up elsewhere or they're 
generationally different or whatever like they also really got a lot out of this work in different ways so I think the um uh sort of there's like a real emotional generosity within the the work and there's a sort of rawness and openness in terms of I don't know how to put it other than like talking about feelings which sounds very trite but um it is very it's sort of upfront about a kind of like raw emotional quality within this work that I think is really interesting and I don't think it's I don't think it sort of lapses into some sort of like almost twee new sincerity type thing or I don't I just never really understood what this new sincerity thing was that people talked about but I don't think it isn't it's just like a sincerity I think it also has this um like edge to it which I tried to bring out in in my piece yeah for sure and you do I think it's interesting hearing you talk about some of the materials because I certainly didn't grow up in North London I grew up in Liverpool but I think mm. all the kind of similar iconography of like shopping centres, you know, the, the transportable imagery, you know. Maybe talk a little bit about how he actually installed the work and that gives a broader sense of maybe the picture that we're just... Yeah. Um, so when it's in a... It's one room. Well, there's two rooms actually, but the I, I, I actually really only wrote about one of the rooms in my piece. Um because the second room is more set up as like a space for performances to happen and it's a sort of more minimal installation with uh that's set up for l- listening to 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 these records that he's installed but I'm, I'll, I'll skip that for a minute um so the main space you walk in and there's like a white uh, like cream thick pile carpet that's covered in plastic um there's uh, a f- video installation that's on one wall and then facing that wall is a is a big photograph of Brent Cross. There's this like listening tower that, that has, uh, I think that's what they're called. They're like CD listening towers that used to be in big like Virgin Megastore or HMV or whatever where you'd like select the CD you want to listen to a kind of um jukebox type thing but for headphones so, so sort of checking a record out if you wanted to buy it or not um so they've installed one of those and then the walls have these like binders um of they're like plastic binders that uh, posters are sold in and those are filled with photographs as well as other um images so there's like some uh, written out song lyrics on kind of liner paper uh, interspersed between that is a poster of uh, a Mariah Carey poster uh, I'm trying to think if I what I'm forgetting oh yeah and then right at the back of the gallery was this sculpture this amazing sculpture that I actually I kind of I feel like I ran out of space to talk about it and um, uh, yeah it's this sculpture that is made of um pull-up bars so like exercise pull-up bars and then suspended from that are these wind chimes that have bottles of poppers inside so it's when you move the wind chimes it's the poppers banging against like the kind of bamboo of the wind chime that makes the sound um there's also in the center of the space these school changing room benches they're like immediately recognizable for i think uh, you know, I don't know where, where, whether these benches exist elsewhere, but I think if you grew up in the UK, 
they're recognizable as changing room benches. And then in the center, there's a, uh, a fountain that's this like weathered steel fountain that's filled with um, black grape, uh, KA black grape drink, which is a, a, a like, I guess it's a drink that I associate with like teenage, like it's a teenager, teenagers drink. I think KA is a Jamaican drinks company. They also make like ginger beer and other drinks. So it's like a popular soft drink um, company and the, the fountain's filled with that juice. Um, and then there's also this element that is um, like an olfactory element, which is the a, a, a knockoff of Santal, 33 is pumped into the room i can't remember how frequently but it, at every regular hour, intervals yeah. so every hour yeah yeah so and then so there's all yeah the, the work kind of like has this multi-sensory quality and then the other room that i didn't write about so much there's like these records that are being played out loud i think that they're the um, my memory's a little gone a little bit fuzzy now, but I think they're the records that Adam listened as it's in the listening notes, which includes the Madonna Ray of Light record, the Sugar Babes One Touch. I think it's Janet Jackson, the Velvet Rope. Um, uh, I can't remember all of them off the top of my yeah. head. Um, yeah, and so there's like sound as well. So I think I hope that was a sort of adequate enough description yeah. of the richness of materials that they're working yeah. with yeah and i think it sort of really speaks to a sort of i mean to me i mean evidently a sort of 90s uh cultural mm. mother, you know and also even mm -hmm. i think also within that we could talk a little bit about how that is an analog pre-digital moment too you know and how that changes in a way access to material access to culture and and maybe what that sort of speaks to in their work um Maybe say something about that. I don't, that seems to be quite an interesting point of discussion. In yeah. yeah, that's that's something that I feel like, again. That's another thing that, like the the sculpture, I would have liked to have had more. I, I would have liked to have spent more time talking about the relationship to technology because I think it's not really pre digital. I think it's the relationship to technology or like the kind of technology that's presented, um, or like not presented, that's uh, engaged with by Adam is a sort of technology, I'm sure that they would have a more specific way of describing this. I'm not so good at like a precision in language and talking about technology, but it's like at the hinge point between something analog mm. and digital. So they, often use this logo in in some of their their imagery which is like a knockoff of the limewire logo which limewire was this like peer-to-peer -peer music sharing software mm. um and they also like do a lot of uh kind of engineering around old bits of tech so whether it might be i don't know like um the i've forgotten the name of it but like a, a, a an early earlier i wish i could remember the name of it it's like the playstation something it was like the small playstation so they have this one video that like has that at the center um so these sort of like handheld devices that i guess 
what I think is interesting is that what what you see in what they sort of engage with or present is that this like extraordinary range of devices. Like there's like um, different types of phone, uh, these little handheld video game consoles. Uh, thinking about how they also refer to certain types of software like LimeWire, and there, there seems to be like this real multiplicity of different types of of tech that they are mostly now finding, recycling, working with at car boot sales. Mm. Like they retool these things, and uh, or, or I don't know, fix them up in some way, and it's like this kind of cornucopia of technological possibilities but so many of them have uh, it, it only existed for a very brief period yeah and now i feel like we're in this moment where the sort of technology that we're most familiar with as a handheld technology is all fairly saming you know mm. the iphone obviously like dominates enormously and then it's phones but everything has been like condensed into phones whereas there's this sort of yeah, breadth of like tech possibilities or something that they seem to to engage with that, that I find I find that quite um, yeah I, I, there's something about that that I find sort of interesting in a way that seems I don't know it, it seems a bit more complicated than just saying something about obsolete obsolete forms of technology or or pre digital things like I think I think about one thing I think about was um, uh, they maybe posted something on their Instagram recently, or I saw that they'd referred to something like a mini disc player. And it immediately, again, like there's so many things that obviously spark memories for me because I am of like a similar age or something as Adam. But I remember my first job was one of my first jobs was working in the record and tape exchange in Notting Hill. And on my first day, this guy that was working there, this, you know, old timer record shop guy, typical typical mm. guy um and he had a mini disc player and i was like why the fuck do you have a mini disc player even <laughs> by then i was just like no one uses a mini disc player um but he was like adamant that it was the best quality sound and so it also makes me think about how certain types of technology that we may no longer think about became very specialized for certain people or certain mm. like hobbies mm. and um yeah but it's it's i don't know it, it definitely appeals to like um, the more like nerdy side of me that that aspect of of their work yeah for sure and also i think it's interesting hearing that discussion in relation to you know you initially mentioned some queer sensibilities and i think mm. you know we talked there's uh, you make some references to the scopic and the voyeuristic or the kind of dimensions that occur like um any more pics and these kinds of uh, aspects yeah. that are played out in the work, you know, technology and sexuality combine in different ways and the ability to find and meet people through technology is also impacted mm. and shifted across those timelines. And so it's sort of an interesting other kind of... Yeah, I think with that, I mean, I suppose the way that I would like think about that is also that there's a whole... It seems to be a lot about um, desire, like, within that. Like, there's sort of obviously a kind of like sexual desire or yeah this sort of like scopic thing that's going on in terms of any more pics or like that that title and desire as it's like communicated through various technologies but I think that there's also through 
their work as a whole, there's a kind of like playing out of certain themes around desire that are quite, there's something quite mournful about it in places, whether that's like specifically through some of the music that is integrated within their work, but also maybe in terms of, uh, I don't know, sort of like emotional vulnerability that comes across. Uh, I think I think that, that what I like about it or what I find interesting is that, you know, it would be fairly, it feels like it would be like fairly straightforward at this point to make a work that was about how, I don't know, different forms of tech have transformed dating, whether it's like um, in relation to certain like subculture, like sexual subcultures or like queer life or I don't know you could think about it in relation to gender or whatever like there's many ways in which one could mm. make a work or, or around the theme of technology and dating or sex or whatever yeah. but there's they do it in a way that doesn't feel like zeitgeisty or something because I feel like it would be so easy to make a work around those themes that would just be like in two years it wouldn't make any sense it would just mm. be um well, that doesn't exist anymore. And that was just a very specific moment. And instead, I feel like their work sort of like unfolds across all these stuff, different themes or, or incorporates all these other emotional states. So it's not just like a sociological comment on how dating apps have changed relationships. <laughs> it, it has it has like a, a more depth to it than that, which to me is really interesting in relation to the I think it would be very straightforward to read a lot of their work as as simply nostalgic and this is something that I talk about at the beginning of my piece whereas I don't think it is at all I think it does something much more than that and it's almost like makes you realize that a sort of drier sociological analysis of these forms that would almost be immediately nostalgic because it would be more like a kind of process of uh trying to ossify or like capture something uh, you know and preserve it to, to study it whereas their their work feels full of a sort of like liveliness or something through through the emotional or like rawness to it um if that makes any sense at all completely um and i think also within that i mean i know we're rattling through the work very quickly here but so i just wanted to quickly ask about the class dimensions how they kind of resist, I think, to, to the, the sort of easily fetishization of those, let's say, iconography or the emblems surrounding those things, and also how that fits within a broader portrait of like resistance to, let's say, nationalism and its connections to, you know, whiteness and so on. So in a mm. way, you know, he's the, the artist is sort of moving out of those, let's say, comfort zones, not comfort zones, but those positions in order to kind of create a, critic, a critical point of uh, conversation um maybe mm. a little bit about that um as well if you uh can you just sorry uh, uh <laughs> just sum summarize and rephrase <laughs> just if you could talk a little bit about the class dimensions in his work and, the and, their work, and yeah. also like you know you talk about end theory and uh end points oh yeah yeah, yeah. end portals yeah. yeah yeah i think um i mean i think uh, 
there's so they they talk about this idea of ends theory which is like kind of to, uh, this is probably not a very good summary of it but uh, it's it's like sort of making with um minimum resources or like the forms of making or i don't want to say creativity but maybe something like that that occur that occur or, or can happen with bare minimum resources so thinking about like uh proletarian or working class um cultures around that and um they are thinking about that specifically also in relation to i think immigrant narratives and obviously in it being a, a kind of northwest london specific um situation uh, uh a, a situation that is you know the the mixing of many different cultures or or whatever like whether yeah. it's um like african or middle eastern or polish or whatever like these kinds of um spaces where you get all these different all these different things going on at once but there's a sort of shared very fractured i think often but shared experience of immiseration at the hands of um like the welfare state or capital or whatever so yeah. there's something shared but there's also full of fracture and i don't think they sort of romanticize uh or gloss over those things um so i thought that uh, i mean that that maybe is one way of thinking about the class dynamics of it i mean i i made this reference in the text to um these books by the writer D Hunter, which sort of came into mind when I was writing up um, this profile. And these are these books that, that this this writer from Nottingham, um, who who's also he's he started this project called the I think it's called the Class Work Project, and he is involved in this magazine called Lumpen, a journal for working class writing and. It's, it's a really different set of um, like references that come across in D Hunter's writing. Like his is a white working class world, um, or, or, although obviously it's it's not entirely white. But but he he's very he's very attentive to like his whiteness and and that in relation to having grown up in Nottingham and 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 where uh, you know he was growing up in a very like often very racist environment, but but was also um, growing up again in a situation where you know it wasn't sort of the, the sort of racism did not uh provide some sort of like barrier between mixing so there was still obviously an enormous amount of mixing of people from all different places um and d hunter's often sort of thinking about how he negotiated that on his own terms uh, at a distance from the sort of racism of, I think it's particularly his father and his father's family. Mm. Um, but the 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 reason why I mentioned those books, which I read last year and found them really extraordinary, um, is is because like it feels like both Adam and Dee Hunter are like thinking a lot about um, the relationship between class politics and a class position and emotional life so they're sort of thinking about um that they're not sort of seeking to split off uh, a, a politicized um class position around like working class life or proletarian life 
they're not seeking to like split that off from some sort of discussion of uh, love or sexuality or um, relationships, but rather they're thinking about how uh, like a particular class position can become strengthened or meaningful through, I don't know, the relationships within a community. Um, I don't know if I'm putting that very well, but I feel like what's what's so refreshing about these projects is is they offer a, a, a way of thinking about um, class politics that is a million miles away from a kind of mainstream political discourse about class politics, which, you know, if we think about the kind of abysmal mm. uh, hopelessness of the current state of the Labour Party, never mind what you think about, like, the last five years or the Corbyn project or whatever, but they're a million miles away from any kind of essentialized notion of working class culture as, oh, well, you know, we've got to appeal to these voters in the North by doing this and that because those people only think about this and they're all, you know, they're all secretly racist and they're all, um, you know, don't want to think about foreigners and they uh, maybe mainly do a certain type of work and they're all heterosexual and they all <laughs> only eat, like, you know, fry-ups and pies, which... Yeah is often, you know, the absurd yeah. narrative is that even people yeah, yeah. who have yeah. well-intentioned yeah. class politics, even people who think they're on the side of a kind of, like, leftist position mm -hmm. around a class politics continue to repeat these narratives when, of course, yeah. if you have any... Uh, if you, you know, have half a brain or engagement with <laughs> the state of the world, you would recognise the fact that the working class is, is the most diverse class, it's the most mixed class. And um, so I feel like both Adam's kind of narratives of ends theory or whatever and D. Hunter's writing just offer these really much more realistic, but also like much more sophisticated narratives around uh, the contemporary state of British class relations, I yeah. suppose is how I would, would see that. And, and a very much like a retort to to those sort of like tired notions of of what what it is to be British and working class. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you, Lon. Thank you very very yeah. much. And I'm I sorry, I feel busy like and everything else that's happening in your life. Um, but uh, it's been a pleasure oh. to speak with you. And um, yeah, you too. Uh, that just leaves me to thank once more Lan and Benoit for joining today. Both of their texts are in the current November issue of Art Monthly, so please do pick up a copy if you would like to know more about the subjects discussed. Details of where to buy a copy can be found on Art Monthly's website. Many thanks for tuning in.